You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to episode 71 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this time around I am taking a look at issue number 63 of the title, which continues our story featuring Speed and Iceman. The issue takes place in February of 1971, and that is why Knock Three Times by Tony Orlando and Dawn is our song, which was number one in the country for the latter part of January and early February of 1971. Our issue came out on October 29th, 1991, and had a cover date of December 1991. It's a cover by Art Nichols, which shows our main characters crossing a river in the driving rain while a firefight goes on in the background and one of them is shot. The headline says, Snafu. It's a pretty straightforward cover. The action is dynamic, with Doggy getting shot and flying through the air behind Speed, who is holding the shirt of someone else as he wades through the water. It definitely gives you a clue to what's going on in that issue, so it's pretty solid. Credits on this one are Chuck Dixon, writer, Wayne Van Zandt, penciler, Kim DeMulder, inker, Phil Felix, letterer, colorist, Don Daly, editor, and Tom DeFalco is your editor-in-chief. We open in February of 1971, and exactly where we left off last issue, although I would like to point out that I spotted a continuity error of sorts. The beginning of that issue was placed in March of 1971, and this is a month earlier, and while I know we're not in real-time storytelling anymore, this issue does begin right after the last issue with Speed and Little Min trapped in an underground river tunnel and being taken away by the current. So this should more likely be March of 71. Uh, And even then, I'm not sure, because I always thought that March of 71 was sort of the flashback portion of the previous issue. But like I said, it's not that big of a deal. Anyway, Speed's panicking. Little Min gives him some advice. He says, go downhill. Charlie doesn't like to drown either, he puts it. And that means that there's an escape somewhere if they follow things downhill. Speed protests, but Little Min takes off and heads away. Realizing that he's got no other course of action, he decides to go downhill as well, and then he spots an opening. He swims toward it, and he enters an underground storage room, where Min sits with two VC he's killed. Min has been stabbed, but he says he's okay. He, they plant a grenade underneath one of the dead VC, who will set off the grenade when his friends come to check the body. Back at the entrance to the cave, it's been 45 minutes, and Ice and Doggy are growing impatient. In the tunnel network, Speed and Min find the communications room where the American who has been working with the VC to broadcast the message they have been tracking, and they kill the VC guards, and Min is about to kill this guy, but Speed stops him and says that they have to take the guy back. They confirm the guy is American, and when he asks what he has, why he has to go with them, Speed says that either he goes with them or Min shoots him on the spot. They begin working their way out and shoot a few more VC who are guarding the caves. Ice and Doggy hear the shooting and try to radio in an evac, but they're in heavy woods and have to head south where they will be picked up. 
Until then, they're on their own. Speed and Min emerge from the cave with their captive and then head out to find Ice and Doggy. They take care of some VC and then all regroup. Speed returns Ice's revolver and they begin heading to the impossible evac place. They come across the river and they begin looking at topographic maps to figure out where they are and where they need to go. It's then when their captive, who they refer to as the Oki, heads off to a riverbank to pick flowers. Speed tackles him, they go slightly downriver, but he drags the Oki back to them. Doggy wants to shoot the guy, but Ice reminds him that, no, they have to bring him back alive. They finally reach the pickup area, but are soon surrounded by the enemy and Doggy is shot. The choppers come in hot, and they load everyone on them, while another takes out the VC who are firing at them and have shot Doggy. Doggy is fading fast, and he tells Speed that he has cash put away for Minky, and he wants Speed to go get the cash to her. He then fades away. Speed doesn't know what that means. The team heads back home, turns the prisoner in, and then heads to Special Ops in Kantum. They are introduced to PFC Anthony Sloan of the 5th Infantry, a 20-year-old hailing from Spokane, Washington. Apparently, they grab the wrong guy. They get chewed up because this isn't their radio man. He's just a person who's Section 8, and he's completely useless. Ice says that they were given absolutely nothing to go on. And the captain says that if he's not part of the solution, he's part of the problem. And a frustrated Ice pulls his revolver, points it at Sloan, and says, I'll show you how to get rid of problems. The guys pull him away, and they head to find Minky. But Minky is not where they think they will find her. The last page shows where she is. We see three soldiers standing around a, a, a courtyard area on the floor of which are what looks like uh, pits dug with cages over them. It says they call them tiger pits. The always economical military police of the Republic of South Vietnam had them dug by prisoners, just like graves. They don't even get buried. When it rains, they get drenched. When the sun is high they bake. When they complain, they get life thrown on them. Minky is learning that some things are worse than dying. This is to be continued. Aside from that glaring continuity error that I pointed out at the beginning of my summary, this is yet another solid issue. I think that Dixon is ratcheting up the tension pretty well, especially considering how Minky is captured while all of this is happening, which leaves something unresolved, even if the mission is seemingly well, over, or at least over enough for them to get back to friendly territory, even if they don't exactly end up doing what they're supposed to. We open really well. Uh, this reads almost like the beginning of either a two-parter in an action television show, or it's what would happen when you come from back from a commercial break and there had been like peril before the commercial break. Dixon didn't go with the tired trope of men actually working for the enemy, by the way, because that that's gets done a lot, and he showed him to be very effective. It's too bad that they got the wrong guy, but the escape was also paced very well, too. They're being shot at in a way we've seen so many times before in this book by an unseen enemy who seems to be larger than they actually are. And you'd think that we would get tired of the constant scenes of jungles and ambushes, but everything we've ever really seen suggests that this was just what was going on, especially on missions like this. You weren't meeting people out of the battlefield. You were fighting a few at the time. You were often losing a couple of people here and there as you tried to get out. What makes this more interesting than yet another ambush story is that Dixon goes to speed and ice and has the characterization down pretty well. 
I was a little unsure last issue, to be honest. I thought it was odd that Ice's hair was mostly colored white, and this issue was back to being blonde, so I think that's because of the different colorists we had last issue. Phil Felix is back here, and his colors overall pop pretty well. Which is great, because once again, the art is very well done and reflects the pacing that Dixon wrote into the script. Ice's characterization also seems to be a little more on point with what Doug Murray had created back when he first showed up. There's a loyalty to his teammates, and it completely makes sense at how he would have pulled that gun on Sloane, even with the Major standing there, because Doggy was his friend, and plus he was very upset about losing Ader back when that happened and is at the end of his first time in the Nam. Plus, while Speed is not a wet behind the ears greenie, his panic at the beginning of the issue over possibly drowning in the cave is certainly realistic, especially if this isn't a situation he's used to. And we don't spend too much time with him struggling to get out of the river. This isn't a bottle episode or anything like that. Min, who has been in this situation before, knows what to do. He takes the out, and Speed shows, well, he isn't stupid or stubborn or both, and he finds his solution. Not only that... But it only takes three pages, including the splash page, and Van Zandt and Mulder have 11 panels where they get enough of Speed's movement and emotion across along with Dixon's narration boxes. It's a good, tense action sequence. For instance, after you see Min go under, Speed screams, Min, and there is a close-up of his very wide eyes while he mumbles, dang little, then we pick up on the narration boxes. And we have... We have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. We have 11 panels. And uh, he says, you know, and, and he says, uh, a deep breath of the moldy air and speed lets the current carry him downhill. And we just see this shot of him holding his breath underwater. And it really does look like he's just floating along with everything. He says, no sign of little men. Speed pictures his dog tags coming up in some farmer's well bucket someday. Speed and his brothers used to swim in the mine cuts back in Pennsylvania. And now his eyes are a little wider because... Perhaps he was thinking about dying, and it panicked him a little bit. He says, and it says that they lived in coal country. Lots of strip mines filled up with dark water, but it was never as dark as this. Have to turn, get his legs behind him. We see a shot of his legs. He's holding his gun the entire time, by the way. Catch a leg on something here, and it'll break, and that's all she wrote. So he's obviously trying to keep his legs... Um, position so that he'll be okay a fist tightens in his chest take a breath no open your mouth no and, and van zandt does a close-up on his face and you could see a little bit of struggle the, the um, felix covers him a little pink and he's try, you could see he's trying to hold his breath blood pounds in his head little spite sparks of light all around now it's just one light a dim glow above him and that last panel is um mostly blue and green water the silhouette of the back of Speed's head in his hand, and in the near, slightly off center is a white dot, which in the next panel on page four is the opening through which he appears saying Min, and then there's the two dead VC and Min holding the knife. So it's really, like I said, it's really paced well and done, done with just the right amount, not drawn out too much and not, not like too short. And it brings him to a whole other set of problems, but we were expecting that anyway. So, like I said, um, I like how this was this was paced. I like how the immediate problems are solved, and the subplot involving Minky will come to the forefront in the next issue because of Doggy's death. And the fact that they got the wrong guy, it's kind of brilliant. Of course, they did. I mean, the issue does say, the cover says, snafu. 
But thankfully, hopefully this review wasn't a snafu. So and with that, I'm going to take a break and I'm going to come back with historical context for February of 1971. Yeah, I'm really excited for 2016. In fact, I think we should record a promo about all the changes to the Fire and Water Podcast Network happening this year. What do you think, Rob? That's a great idea. We can mention the new folks joining the network and all the shows. I can talk about how we'll continue with our Aquaman and Firestorm show. And I want to be sure to plug my movie show, The Film and Water Podcast. What about you, Ryan? Oh, I think we should definitely record a promo. I'll mention how the Secret Origins podcast is joining the Fire and Water Network. And then I'll introduce my newly relaunched shows, Give Me Those Star Wars and Power of Fishnets, The Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. Sound good to you, Chris? Absolutely. I'll mention the show I record with my lovely wife, Cindy, Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. We should probably also mention the Power Records podcast Rob and I do, too. What about you, Siskoid? Well, sure. I can talk about my ensemble show, The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, and my new upcoming shows about the DC Comics crossover event, Invasion, and yes, Oh Hot Moo. Shag, you think we should mention Hero Points, the most occasional DC Heroes role-playing podcast? Sure, why not? And I can talk about Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, and mention my new upcoming show, Justice League International, Wahaha podcast. Now, here's what I'm thinking. When we record, I'm fine being the first person talking. I can explain all the changes to the Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. Why do you get to start the promo? I'm just as much of a part of this as you are. It was my idea to create the Fire and Water podcast back in 2011. I should start off this promo. I kind of think it should be one of the new voices who kick off the promo. It'll shock the listener into attention if it's not Rob or Shag. Cindy and I make up two people in the network. Plus, you know, ladies first, so we should be the first people talking on the promo. Ben voyons donc. You have what? got uh, what? French cannot be the Enough! Stop it. You're like boys with toys. Let's just make this simple. We can tell the folks at home the Fire and Water Podcast Network is growing in 2016. Several new shows are joining the network. We'll have a new dedicated website, a Twitter account, and Facebook page. And folks will be able to subscribe to each individual show or all of them. See, now was that so hard? Fire and Water Podcast Network. Available soon through iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fireandwaterpodcast.com. Seriously, Shag, you had to get the last word, didn't you? The one big event in the Vietnam War for February of 1971 is Operation Lam Son 719, which was the invasion of Laos by South Vietnamese forces. The United States provided logistical, aerial, and artillery support, but the ground troops were all South Vietnamese. According to Wikipedia, this, has an, this was an effort to disrupt supply lines and troop movements of North Vietnamese forces along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which primarily ran through Laos. They hoped to continue to bolster the morale of the South Vietnamese troops, who were already riding high after a successful campaign in Cambodia the year before. This was also a test of what has been referred to as Vietnamization. In other words, the United States had slowly been turning the operation of the war over to the South Vietnamese army, and a successful mission here would further, further prove that the ARVN was able to handle its own combat and would not be on, as reliant on U.S. ground forces. Wikipedia has a pretty extensive page in the operation, so I won't get into all of the detail, but the overview is that this was not planned as well as previous missions, and the counteroffenses were successful. The mission ended on March 25th, with the retreat of the remaining South Vietnamese forces from Laos, and some of the best RV, ARVN units were decimated. Additionally, the morale they were hoping to continue boosting was badly destroyed as well. 
And that does it for historical context. Uh, there's no letter column in this issue. But I do have a listener email from Luke Giaconetti, who is the host of Earth Destruction Directive, as well as one of the hosts of the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, which are both on the Two True Freaks Network. And he was my co-host for an episode of the Pop Culture Affidavit miniseries, 80 Years of DC Comics, where we sat down and talked about war comics, specifically DC's classic character Sergeant Rock, as well as an issue of Weird War Tales. If you're interested in hearing that, I highly recommend that you do, because it was a great episode, and he was a great co-host. Go over to Two True Freaks, or go to popcultureaffidavit.com, and uh, find that episode of my 80 Years of DC Comics series. Here's Luke's email, the subject of which was Podpocalypse Now. Tom. Hey man, just wanted to drop you a quick line and voice my approval for your coverage of Apocalypse Now on In Country. Apocalypse Now is one of one which I had known f- about for a while before I watched it. My father was always a big movie buff, and he was an early and avid VHS adopter. When VHS started coming down in price in the early 90s, he bought hundreds of commercial tapes, Apocalypse Now being one of them. I eventually inherited the VCR VHS copy, which I still own. Pretty sure I didn't watch this one until either late high school or early college, and I'm thinking later high school is that was when I watched The Deer Hunter and Full Metal Jacket, etc. Now, what's telling of Apocalypse Now staying power in popular culture is how many times it has been parodied. Besides the fantastic turn you used from Hot Shots Part 2, I love you and Wall Street is a favorite non sequitur of mine to yell on roller coasters or at wrestling shows. <laughs> It was also riffed on in everything from Meatballs 3, DuckTales, Tiny Toon Adventures, Animaniacs, Return to Horror High, Xena Warrior Princess, Seinfeld, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie. Of course, there's also the scene in Jarhead where the Marines watch the helicopter scene before deployment to Iraq, making a cardinal sin of filmmaking never remind the audience of a different, better movie they could be watching instead. It's clear that Apocalypse Now has transcended itself and now exists as a certain rarefied era of pop culture. And uh, Luke, thank you for listing all those references. You're right. It's it's one of those movies like, I'm going to bring up, an, I think I may have mentioned this, like um, another Coppola movie, The Godfather or uh, or Citizen Kane, where I knew of the movie and knew of some very specific references to the, the, the movie because of things like cartoons. Spoiler alert, I knew Rosebud was the sled in Citizen Kane years before I saw it because of cartoons like Tiny Toons or Animaniacs or The Simpsons, and I knew a lot of what Apocalypse Now was or The Godfather because of references to lines in in shows like that. I may have seen bits and pieces of this movie on WPIX from time to time again because they used to run it. Uh, they, they used to run that movie uh, every so often, uh, but I don't think I saw the whole saw the whole movie until I was in college. Anyway, back to Luke's email. It's a powerful film, despite how much of it has become almost cliche in the decades since the release. Brando's weirdness lends the film an almost fantastical sense in his scenes, which clashes harshly with the cinema verite of the jungle scenes. It's psychedelic without being trippery, very thoughtful without being brain effery, and staunchly anti-war without being preachy or bleeding hard about it. And, uh, and, and I'm going to step away from Luke's email for a second to say I agree, and that's actually interesting because if you 
Luke and I have a kind of running joke that we find common ground, even though we sit on opposite ends of the political spectrum or other sides of the or opposite sides of the aisle, at least. But you're right. I mean, even as as anti-war as I can be, even the stuff that is very heavy-handed to me, that is very preachy, in my mind, does not work as well, or f- can can end up being get very dated very quickly. Uh, and Coppola's style in just kind of showing the horror of war for what it is as an anti-war piece works because of the way it transcends that sort of overt message. Um, and Because uh, there's not a lot that's subtle in Apocalypse Now, but he, he does it um, deftly, I think is one of the best ways to put it. All right, back to Luke's email. All that having been said, it's a hard movie to watch sometimes. This is true. It takes a certain mindset, like a lot of the best Vietnam pictures, to want to pop it in, sit down, and experience it. But I do feel that after your episode, I am probably due for a rewatch. Looking forward to more Nam and anything else coming down the pipeline, Luke. Uh, thanks, as always, for emailing in, Luke. The Apocalypse Now episode was admittedly a lot of work, as I had to watch two films, as well as skim through a decent amount of Peter Biskin's Reezy Riders Raging Bulls. But... I really enjoyed putting it together. I'm glad you got so much out of it, and I hope that uh, everybody else did as well. So, like I said, there's no letters in this issue. There's no nom notes. So let's just uh, let's just finish it out by looking at the ads. Um, there is a Smash TV Nintendo Entertainment System ad. This is a game. I never particularly ever played, and I think that we're we're getting to the end of the the reign of the NES here. Um, Super Nintendo will be out within a couple of years, and uh, so we're toward the later games that I didn't play a lot of. But I remember seeing this ad a lot um, in in '90s comics. There's the same Game Genie ad we saw before. You can get. Um, the Marvel Superheroes calendar, f- featuring 365 full-color photographs of Marvel's rarest comic book covers for $14.95, or the complete Marvel 1961 to 1990 reference book, The Photo Journal Guide to Marvel Comics, uh, by Ernie Gerber, and this is from the Gerber Publishing Company. I remember seeing this at Borders way back in the early 90s, and I remember flipping through it, and it was... Um, I never could afford to buy it, although I totally would have if I had the money, because this is this would be the type of thing I would just flip, want to flip through all the time. And um, something I was I was talking about with Mike Bailey on a, on an episode we did uh, a while ago was that um, I used to go to the library and check out or, or just flip through the Overstreet Price Guide uh, because you got to see a lot of illustrations covers of books that you never saw the covers for and you know we, we kind of take it for granted now in the internet age that we have access to images of old comic books and old comic book covers if i wanted to google if i didn't you know i didn't have to scan for the show notes here i didn't have to scan um the cover of the nom 63 i just googled it there's a there's a cover that you, that i usually grab from the marvel uh, wiki site because it's that's essentially an open source site and and post and and download and post it to my blog back in 1992 you didn't have that you didn't have a mike's amazing world this is basically this is basically mike's amazing world in book form and uh, that's what i love about it uh we have slam jam wham fleer basketball cards is the uh 
it, uh, going across both parts of the staple in the center of the book. We have the same Marvel t-shirt ad. There's nothing on here that I own, but they, they were in, big into these all-over things. There is a Spidey versus Morbius by Todd McFarlane t-shirt with Spidey back in the black costume. Um, and bullpen bulletins this month. The Coolometer, again... Here's what you think should be cool. Again, this is just, it's so. Uh, the Adams Family and Boris Yeltsin, which they misspell, by the way. Scorsese and New York movies, The Fantastic Four, Comedy Central, Peter Bagg's Hate, Environmental Impact Statements, Mikhail Gorbachev, um, All Cool, Uncool, New York City Subway System, well, yeah. Communism, Macaulay Culkin, Nuisance Suits, Self Referentialism, The October Coolometer. All right. ABC sitcoms, especially Who's the Boss. Um, in the bullpen bulletins thing, you've got you have a first company picnic back in August. They played softball and they played the DC Bullets and they won the last game of their series against uh, the uh, the Bullets eight to nothing. They went to uh, St. Mary's Recreational Center in the Bronx. They're building now sports a huge mural filled with Marvel characters. Um, and there are a bunch of new fathers. Uh, Stan's Soapbox is a tribute to Vinny Coletta. Uh, Vinny had just passed. And um, if you listen to True True Freaks on a regular basis and you listen to Back to the Bins, Vince Coletta is notorious because of the way his inks deleted, almost literally deleted the art or deleted the pencils or took away from the pencils and sometimes like I said literally but I would like to read what, what Stan had to say he says hi heroes his name was Vincent Coletta but everyone called him Vinny he started working for Marvel more than 30 years ago before we were ever known as Marvel I believe we were called Atlas Publishing then but the company didn't name doesn't matter what matters is telling you what a great guy Vinny was Hardly anyone except me knows this because hardly anyone else was around at the time, but the first stories that Vinny drew for us were romance strips. When I say, quote, drew, I mean he did both the penciling and the inking, and he did them superbly. Now, I'm not talking ordinary run-of-the-mill comic book romance strips. I'm talking about some of the most breathtakingly beautiful pen and ink illustrations you've ever seen. Vinny treated each and every panel as if it were intended for the Louvre. I used to tell him he was putting too much work into each strip, that if it wasn't that it wasn't necessary to make everything so lyrical, so pleasing to the eye, so incredibly perfect. After all, we were just printing ten cent comic books. Ten cents, that'll give you an idea of how long ago it was. But Vinny couldn't help himself. He was a born perfectionist. If a drawing wasn't to his liking, he'd do it over and over again until he was satisfied. In the most literal sense of the word, Vince Coletta was a truly dedicated artist. Years later, if the romance have added run its course, Vinny offered to put his skill to use by inking or other strips, mainly superhero thrillers. For the next few decades, his speed, his dependability, dependability, his total professionalism saved our deadlines and our schedule more times than I can ever tell. The bullpen and I recently learned of Vinny's passing. We'll always regret that we had never had the chance to bid him goodbye, but I want to take this opportunity to offer our most heartfelt condolences to his wife and family. Vince Coletta was a uniquely talented, charismatic artist who was always there even when we needed him and who never gave less than the best. He was a credit to our industry. He was my friend. I miss you, VC. So do we all. Excelsior. Stan. It's a nice tribute to somebody who, like I said, um, we don't really have the best opinion of a lot of times on podcasts uh, because a lot of times we do see his inks as weak. 
But that idea that he was constantly on time, dependable, etc., and and a very good friend friend of Stan's does make sense in terms of how he kept getting work throughout his long career. Our next ad is entertainment this month. Robin to the Joker's Wild is the feature thing. We see we see the Joker holding. We see a cover of one of the issues with the Joker holding up was the hologram, and on the cover, the hologram in the story was a Robin one, and on the comic. But in this, they've imposed superimposed Wolverine on it, and the Joker saying, "It's no joke." All orders sent postmarked by November 9th get a free limited edition X Men hologram card by Jim Lee. You can get the collector sets, the one through four for the hologram covers, the newsstand covers, ETM comic picks, Batman vs. Predator 1 and 2, all new violent series should be blazing hot. New Mutants 87, the new gold cover edition will be blisteringly hot. Star Wars Dark Empire, Warlock number 1, Wolverine 50, giant size features an incredible die cut cover. X-Force number one, all-new gold cover edition by Rob Liefeld. So these are all, like, other printings of it. You know, when the first printing is the one that's, you know, a lot of money. Robin bestsellers, Death in the Family, Lonely Pussies of Trades, ETM Mega Hits, DC Card Series, which was the Cosmic Cards, uh, Ghost Riders Punisher Wolverine is a must-have. Lobo Paramilitary Christmas Special. The Easter Bunny hires Lobo to kill Santa. Oh, we are in the 90s, kids. The Marvel 1991 yearbook. Um, X-Men cards. New deluxe books. Aliens, Tribes, Batman, Dracula. I actually have that one. Batman of the Future, which is uh, Master of the Future, which is uh, the sequel to Gotham by Gaslight. There's the best of Star Trek. Excalibur vs. Galactus, etc. Um... And if you want to listen, there was a recent, I did a recent episode of Pop Culture Affidavit with Mike Bailey where we talked about Entertainment This Month American comics as well as uh, collecting in the 90s. And we had a lot of fun doing it. So go check that out as well. There's the same Remo Williams, The Destroyer issue. There is a Marvel Masterworks uh, ad as well. A cap's coming at us with the holiday savings coupon. And Streets of Rage is the is the video game advertised for a new gaming system that's leading the 16-bit revolution called Sega Genesis. The back cover is a D&D game ad. And that'll do it. Next time out, we'll be taking a look at the next issue, which is which will complete this particular storyline, and that will be the nom number 64. Until then, thanks for listening and take care. Read how many times I saw you How in my silence I adored you You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. And you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom. Your body's way.
feeling if you want me Oh, twice on the pipe If the answer is no Means you'll meet me in the hall 